Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. This is Stephen Moray, president of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Today, I'm delighted to be talking with Greg Leroy. Greg is the executive director of America's foremost watchdog organization for economic development incentives, Good Jobs First. Today, we're gonna be talking about the inspiration for the creation of Good Jobs First, Greg's thoughts about the Amazon HQ2 project, and in particular, his thoughts about how Virginia approached that, and finally, his thoughts about the future of economic development incentives in the United States. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm very pleased this morning to have with us Greg Leroy, who is the head of Good Jobs First, America's leading economic development incentive watchdog organization. Greg and I have known each other for, I guess it's fair to say, many years now. Back to my time as Secretary of Economic Development in Louisiana, we have called on Good Jobs First from time to time for advice on economic development incentives, administration, reporting, accountability. We've also regularly read various reports and position pieces that Good Jobs First puts out. And so, Greg, my first question for you has to be, how often does an economic development organization reach out to you to... uh, talk about incentives, or do we all just, uh, do people just run from you? <laughs> <laughs> well, some, sometimes they call us uh, explicitly. We also know that they're very heavy users of our databases, both our subsidy tracker database and our violation tracker database. Uh, state and local governments are among the very heaviest identifiable users of both of those databases. You know, every state's kind of got someone who is you know, either secretary of economic development or head of their economic development authority. When you think about those people, those 50 folks, what proportion of them would you say have reached out to Good Jobs First for input on incentives, policy, accountability, or, or transparency? Oh, probably about maybe a fifth of them have explicitly called us up to say things like, how do I get a better grade next time? Or show us what you meant by that. Or we just uploaded and improved our website when do we get evaluated next, things like that. We also know from lots of other sources that about at least two-thirds of the states, that is, high 30s numbers of states, either governors or secretaries of commerce have acknowledged us either in public statements or in statements to NGOs in state capitals that we work with. It's evident to us that for better or for worse, a lot of commerce agencies and governor's offices of economic development pay a lot of attention to our especially our report card studies, and in some cases, our studies that are specific to states, like the studies we did on fairness or lack thereof to small businesses. So one question I shouldn't say I've always wanted to ask you, maybe I just didn't think of it until now, Mm -hmm. but what was it that first drew you to get involved with economic development incentives? I'd be curious, I I presume that you're actually the the founder of Good Jobs First. I may be mistaken that, but I'd love to hear, like, what was it? You've obviously been not just the leader of it, but clearly very engaged, very passionate, you know, about the topic, would love to understand how you got into it, what drew you to it, and then sort of a second part of the question, what future do you hope to see, you know, based on the work that you guys are doing? This is an accidental career. It's completely a fluke. I lived most of my adult life in Chicago, and I got involved with a group in the early 1980s that was helping people try to prevent factory closings. It was, you know, when the term Rust Belt was getting coined and the deindustrialization of America had just been written, and the Midwest was really suffering a lot of closures. And in a previous job, I had worked a little bit on incentives, and so I knew the alphabet soup. And what happened was we kept finding that factories that were announced to be closing had gotten incentives. They had gotten enterprise zone credits or revenue bonds or property tax abatements. And we would read the fine print to say, does this give us any leverage to question the company's decision to close? And almost always the answer was no, even though that was pretty outrageous facially. And then we would take that 
we, the coalition of unions, community groups, church groups, elected officials, to try to convince the company to at least make a better severance package or give more notice or, you know, do something to cushion the blow. We won a couple of exotic cases. We actually stopped the shutdown of the biggest factory in Duluth, Minnesota in 1988. We won a big settlement for some pharmaceutical workers in Indiana in 1992. We won at trial and lost on appeal in a very high-profile case against General Motors in Ypsilanti Township in Michigan. In the wake of those things, a lot of reforms popped up. I mean, rightfully so, a lot of elected officials said, look, this is crazy that companies can take the money then run. We need clawbacks or recapture provisions to protect taxpayers in the event of things like that. Clawbacks were kind of an exotic European import at that point. A couple of academics had written things about them, but but they weren't widely understood. So I wrote a book in 1994 called No More Candy Store, which just collected the reforms that mostly had popped up in the wake of these disputes about plant closings. And I thought I was going to be done. I'd been doing that for a decade at that point. I was kind of repetitive. I went to do some other things. And of course, it, it backfired. In the next couple of years, people said to me, well, you wrote the book. You've got to come give a workshop. You've got to look at this bill I just drafted. You've got to uh, give us another opinion. <laughs> so I saw a foundation competition in 1998 called the Stern Family Fund Public Interest Pioneer. It was a national competition. I won that in 98. And that's how I started Good Jobs First. You proposed it as a concept in a grant competition? I did. I did. I said, you know, there's this war among the states. There's a lot of poorly regulated money out there. There's a lot of people who see ways to fix things. We've got this embryonic, you know, positive movement on these reforms I've documented, but we need a focused, you know, kind of a laser focused watchdog player to do that. And that's that's what we try to be at Good Jobs First. We're now just, uh, we'll be 21 this year. That's awesome. You know, I don't know that I actually ever knew that, but I just, in my gut, felt like you had to have been the founder. I'm the only one crazy enough. (laughs) Well, I'll certainly say from my perspective, in having, you know, had this position in both Virginia and Louisiana, while we haven't necessarily agreed with everything that Good Jobs First has done, it definitely has been the organization that we've most often, you know, gone to when thinking about particularly issues around accountability, reporting, transparency, and then even technical stuff. When people think about Good Jobs First and the economic development community, I think the perception is there that Good Jobs First is sort of against all economic development incentives. But I, but I think your perspective is actually a little more nuanced than that. I may be mistaken, but I, I seem to recall that it's not quite that. And I just wonder if you could clarify whether that is the case or not. Yeah, thanks for asking. And we've never been against incentives per se. We're not libertarians in that respect, although we like the fact that some libertarian groups have weighed in on these issues in in very principled ways. And I think there's really kind of a left-right common ground on a lot of reforms, especially around transparency. But look, as long as a, a program really meets the definition of an incentive, I'm very comfortable with it. And that, that, that means something good should happen but it's not happening and it won't happen until public dollars reduce private risk. You know, that's sort of the classic college class definition, right? If Mm -hmm. you're talking about a food desert that hasn't had a grocery store for a decade, the private market's not going to bring that. That's a a completely legitimate use. People should not have to take a long bus ride to get dinner or pick up a prescription or buy a pair of shoes for their kids. Similarly, citizens returning from incarceration who need new skills to improve their chances getting a second chance in life, totally great use of public dollars. Affordable housing in many markets today, clearly a big need and can be a powerful strategic benefit to regional economies. The trouble is so many other programs have gotten so loosely deregulated that they've really become windfalls, that they're not moving the needle, that you can't really argue credibly that they're fixing a market imperfection, so to speak. That's the distinction we make. And isn't it also, if I recall correctly, I mean, a lot of what what seems to me the, the biggest amount of energy is really around 
the issue of accountability and transparency. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, to us, transparency is the cornerstone of everything else, no matter where you're coming from. If you think that small businesses aren't getting a fair shake, you can't get to first base unless you know the distribution of deals. If you think that there's a regional equity, that the low-income areas aren't getting enough help, again, without geographic information about deals, you can't really know if you're right or not. If you are concerned about the wages getting paid by incentivized companies or any other metric that might be of concern, you got to get to first base with disclosure. When you sort of think about the broader question of use of incentives by states and localities, it certainly seems to me that there are certain kinds of projects that practically a requirement that there be a, some kind of meaningful package, like say an automotive OEM facility or other kind of highly coveted projects, if for no other reason than you know, some states are going to do it, so other states do feel like they have to. So in the absence of a unilateral disarmament by communities and states, what, what do you think are some of the most important public policy decisions that public officials can make uh, around incentives? Yeah, great question. And I'm actually preparing a memo. We've had so many questions about what's to be done, especially in the wake of the Amazon HQ2 competition. So, you know, in the, in the auto space, we've got two prominent examples recently of companies not taking the biggest incentive packages, right, including the new Toyota deal, right, that went to Alabama, uh-huh. Alabama rather than North Carolina, right? And uh, similarly, when Toyota located its uh, pickup truck plant in San Antonio, Texas, numerous years ago now, they had gotten much bigger incentive packages, two, three times bigger from both Mississippi and Arkansas. But we're public saying, you know, the, it matters to us that Texas is the biggest market for pickup trucks. They gave us an extra railhead so we get competitive freight rates. The speech I make to public officials is don't get caught up in the 2%, keep your eyes on the 98%. And by that, I mean this. When companies are comparing places, they run the costs as well as the benefits. And on the cost side, 98% of the costs of a typical company aren't state or local taxes. And therefore, those big cost variables almost always drive where companies choose to expand or locate. And if public officials would focus their 98% of their energy on great infrastructure, a great skills base, thinking strategically about clusters and linkages and other things that benefit lots of employers rather than the 2%, which is to say shaving off some fraction of 2% with incentive deals, they'll come out ahead in the long run because that's where the real action is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and I think well to the automotive plant, you're absolutely right. That was definitely a good example of a company picking not the biggest one, but even in Alabama where they went, it was still pretty meaningful, although I think largely focused on site site preparation, which maybe you would look at a little more favorably than that, but I don't know. Well, certainly to the extent infrastructure investments may benefit numerous employers, mm-hmm. that's a more diffuse way of spending money. It's a lower risk, you know, not as many eggs in one basket strategy. Sure. So that actually raises a broader topic. Um, you know, you, Good Jobs First, uh, Amy Liu at Brookings and others have kind of called for a you know, a change in how we do economic development in America. You know, one more focused on I guess what I might call product development or capacity building, you know, talent development, mm-hmm. investment in infrastructure, investment in education, investment in placemaking, and so forth. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges that people face that are sort of economic development professionals or practitioners is that folks who actually fund economic development activities, state and local elected officials, private sector leaders that you know, fund regional groups and so forth, they largely remain focused on transactions, you know, announcements, you know, some mm-hmm. – company announcing an expansion or, or a new location with jobs and capital investment. And that tends to push people toward short-term initiatives, things like incentives, for example, where, you know, what can you do in, you know, a single year, let's say, to really move the needle. That definitely tends to push 
folks toward those sort of traditional economic development mechanisms. You know, there's one thing Amy Lou and I've talked about a lot, which is really want to change the course of economic development. It's not so much, I mean, certainly the economic development practitioners have a role, but I think to a large extent, they're sort of responding to the funding regime, you know, that's out there that actually funds all their organization. How do you think that paradigm can change? Like what, what, what would really move the needle to get the funders of economic development opportunity, economic development activities to think about it differently? Yeah, great question. And I think that there's a mix of things going on here, but you're speaking to this issue of changing the political reward system. People need to be convinced of the reality here. There's a fresh book out by Professor Nathan Jensen from the University of Texas called Incentive to Pander, where he again documents that the closer an elected official is to their re-election date, they're an easier touch. They're more likely to overspend on incentive deals. I think he's right, and I think he's a, an astute observer of this issue. So we need to figure out ways to change the reward system. And I think, you know, obviously campaign finance reform is part of that. One more reason for campaign finance reform. We're about to lay out a whole menu of sort of summarizing a lot of good things that we see out there and also borrowing from Europe about capping incentives in ways that just reduce the ability of governments to overspend by using metrics, caps on dollars per job, dollars per deal, dollars per program as a percent of the tax base, the local property or sales tax base. I think there's, a, there's something to be done at every level of government now to cool off this war among the states and start changing the political reward system. I completely agree with you. At the end of the day, I think career staff economic development people know that the game isn't smartly written. They're trapped in a game whose rules they never would have written, but they can't change that game without the support of their elected officials. No, those are great points. As I think you're aware, previous work by Good Jobs First, as well as conversations you and I had uh, early on and later on, had a meaningful influence on Virginia's approach for the Amazon HQ2 project, but we didn't actually share our proposal with you, you know, prior to the company's announcement. So I'd be curious, now that you've had a chance to sort of reflect on it, what do you think about Virginia's approach with Amazon, sort of compared to other states, as well as kind of the big focus we, we placed on, on tech talent development? I tip my hat to the state in that respect for not spending in the, in the stratosphere the way there's other bids had. Without knowing your thinking, debriefing now for the first time after the, uh, the news comes out, you know, I assume you knew that you had a strong hand. You had a terrific piece of real estate in a place where the company had always presumably shortlisted next to a lot of its lucrative clients in a city where Bezos already had a big residence under construction. Lots of boxes checked with a very strong workforce and lots of other internet companies and a large presence for Amazon Web Services already, lucrative clients for Amazon Web Services, uh, so on and so forth. And I assume that the structure of the deal reflects your all-knowing that you had a strong hand to play. Now, I've also been asked by lots of journalists why there is such a difference in the spending of the deals. And I make the point that New York had historically always been a big mega deal state. If, depending mm -hmm. on how you slice the data by money or deals, New York and Michigan have always been the biggest spenders in this space for, for really you know, nine and 10 figure deals. So it would have been, although obviously this is the biggest deal in Virginia's history, it's by comparison historically to other states, Virginia has never been way up there the way New York has. That, that's just objectively true, and this is consistent with that history. Our offer was, I think, less about feeling like we had a strong hand and probably more about sort of being consistent with Virginia's kind of tradition of, you know, being kind of conservative about these kinds of things. We would not have been able to get approved anything like Maryland or Pennsylvania did, even if we had proposed it. We really saw this as an opportunity to, to work on that broader set of issues you talked about with a big focus on tech talent, you know, and ultimately roughly a billion dollars we expect to add to our public higher education institutions mm -hmm. to 
double the production of computer science and related degrees. And we think that made a difference, but it certainly um, is going to make a difference for our whole tech sector. We'll never know exactly what Amazon weighted the most. You know, the other thing mm -hmm. that's funny, uh, Greg, is if you look back at that process, almost everybody was picking other states, other locations initially. You know, the first few months, it wasn't until the downselect to three areas in the D.C. metro that Virginia started to be considered a front runner. You know, the first few months, everybody was picking, gosh, what was it, Boston, Dallas, Atlanta, I think Austin, Moody's did right. an analysis. Top 10 didn't even have D.C. or Northern Virginia. So it's interesting how it, how it turned out. We were actually a little worried when they went down to the top 20 and they left out. You know, we had proposed Greater Richmond and Hampton Roads as well, right. thinking that, you know, if they ended up focusing on cost more, that Northern Virginia would get knocked out and we'd still have another play. As it turned out, you know, it ended up just being the one and, and we, we ultimately got there. I, I certainly agree that we had an exceptional site. Oh, my goodness. We got lucky with that. Uh, really was a, a fantastic location. As you think about, what do you think America, broadly speaking, and its economic development practitioners can learn from the Amazon HQ2 process? Well, we're certainly trying to compost it by saying a couple things. Pulling back this sort of 5,000 feet, you know, I think the, one of the big teachable takeaways for the general public was, oh, my God, what's this system about? You know, I was surprised at how many even semi-experienced business journalists I had to educate about the way site location system searches typically work. And it reflects the fact that this was, I think, only the sixth public auction in U.S. history, right? Three by Boeing, Tesla, and oh, right. yeah. long ago Saturn and General Motors back in the 80s. The fact that these auctions are conducted secretly almost always means that it's just an incredibly poorly understood aspect of the economy and, and government practice. And I think that now a lot more people understand how this works. And we've certainly taken advantage of it for that purpose to try to explain, you know, the history of Fantas and the site location consulting industry and all the 80-year backstory about the, the way the system's evolved and and how typically it's, it's so secretive. I think there's going to be a lot more pressure now for the kinds of remedies we've been pushing all along, which is to say, let's have caps for subsidies. Uh, you may also notice that the whole issue of having formal agreements between neighboring states not to pirate each other, I think is about to get completely rekindled. Which states would you say right now are kind of doing the best when it comes to transparency or administration of incentives? Oh, that's a great question. You know, although Illinois certainly has a troubled economy, in the three biggest report cards we've done on transparency, it's consistently come in first. Although states like North Carolina and uh, Wisconsin, oddly enough, and Nevada have done well in that space too. On other metrics we've used for things like clawbacks and job quality standards, other states like Vermont, but again, North Carolina, Texas come in well as well. It's a very hard question to answer because so many states' tax systems interact with incentives in ways that make some incentives non-existent. Well, we definitely are working to uh, improve, and I think we're I think we're getting better. We're not, not at the top yet, but we're getting there. When you look at the future of economic development incentives in the U.S., Greg, and what advice would you give to state and local economic development leaders? I mean, if you sort of had to say the single most important thing that they should do is what? You know, I think it's, it's almost a base, back to the basic speech. That is, know what you're good at first. What are your comparative advantages? Why are your incumbent employers there, and what can you do to help them expand, and what can you do to help startups? At the end of the day, you're in and you're out. Almost every state's job growth is entirely attributable to either startups or expansions. 
and not migration, not piracy. And then you have to have a close market analysis. You've got to really understand your core industries. What is their future? What are they good at? How can they do better on customized training or quality control or export promotion or procurement of affordable health care or all of the above? Uh, do they need closer partnerships with university engineering programs for new product development? Which is to say, spending money in public systems and public investments that that improve the value proposition for your area. That's that's really at the bottom line. You're not putting a lot of eggs in any one company's basket. You're betting on a sector. You're betting on the future of uh, a segment that you've got a demonstrable advantage in or a, or a plausible future advantage in, um, but you're not risking a lot of money with any one bet. That makes sense. Well, that's great advice. Really, again, really appreciate you making time uh, to talk with us today. Um, we're definitely going to be continuing to follow Good Jobs First closely and I think our site consultant friends and um, corporate executives are going to find it interesting that we're featuring you guys in our first issue, which we're excited <laughs> about. Um, appreciate you taking the time. I especially enjoyed hearing about how Good Jobs First got started and, and some of the nuances about the principles, uh, you know, the values of Good Jobs First I think are not as well known. We're looking forward to sharing that as well. So thank you. Thanks, um, Stephen. This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.